And so Jesus saw himself in a particular way on mission in the world. He just came back from 40 days in the wilderness, in the desert. Um, Jesus, who uh, is later called the second Adam, uh, resist three diabolical temptations. But unlike the first Adam, he resists and overcomes the devil. He becomes the second Adam and the second chance for humanity. And I want to continue on where I left off with the kids. After he finished reading Isaiah, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words and were coming, that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote the Proverbs, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He goes on to illustrate a couple things, and we're going to skip that part. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. Skip a few verses ahead. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the reading of the scriptures. I want to make sure you get this story because it's a good one. Jesus leaves the desert and begins teaching all over the region, certain synagogues and all over the kind of greater region before he comes home, he was clearly a great preacher. Because it didn't take long for the entire region to start talking, right? All, in all of Galilee, his fame started to grow. He was the new hot preacher. There were blogs about him, both celebration and critique. His, his hashtag was trending. His TikTok was on fire. He was an influencer. And he heads home. He walks back down those familiar streets, nods to those who saw him on the block like Jenny from the block. He stops by the carpentry shop to hang out with his old co-workers, and he heads home for a good meal and some rest before he goes to church in the morning because he's got to preach up. He wakes up and he walks to the synagogue, the one he grew up in. Some of y'all grew up here. You know what this is like after you've been away for a little while? One of the elders must have invited him, and probably several others, if the tradition of, of normal synagogue worship, so y'all don't worry about the fact that you only get one sermon on a Sunday. It's good. I wonder if there was like a welcome home sign, if there was going to be, you know, potluck in the fellowship hall after dinner, after service. But the buzz would have been real. His cousin John had been hyping him like crazy all throughout the regions. And his cousin John knew how to hype things. Mary and Joseph were beaming. Their boy was now a hometown hero. Everybody was talking about him. It would have been a little bit like LeBron going back to Cleveland. 
except for he didn't tick off Cleveland. He didn't tick off Nazareth like he had ticked off, that LeBron had clicked off. Yeah. Yeah. So it would be more like if Steph Curry came back to Charlotte for the Bobcats. The GOAT comes back, right, to win a championship. I might be manifesting a little bit on this one. At the right time was the Haftarah, the reading of the prophets. And Jesus stood up and received the scroll. Pause. Because he rolls the scroll to where he wants to go. And he reads verse, what we call chapter 61, verse 1. And 61, 1 and 61, 2, A. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled it back and gave it to the deacon, the attendant, and sat down. I, my imagination gets a hold of me sometimes, but I imagine it was a slow walk back to his seat. The drama would have been thick. And then Jesus stands up after taking his seats and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing, which isn't exactly a sermon or exactly a sermon, just real short. I, of course, imagine a mic drop at this point. The English re reads, they marveled at him, a word that's somewhere, somewhere between awe and astonishment, not necessarily approval, but awe and astonishment. They marveled at his words. The words were gracious. They got that. But he was claiming something so um, grandiose, it would have been unnerving. And Jesus was saying he was the Messiah, the one prophesied about, the one who would make all things new. To fulfill God's mission, in God's engagement to the world. That's why they were astonished. And the, the scriptures doesn't um, delve into this, but somehow offstage in the middle of the congregation, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Little old Jesus Ben Joseph. He's a carpenter. And now he's talking like a revolutionary. I changed his diaper in nursery. I taught him how to cut a right angle. And we don't even want to talk about Mary's like premarital situation and pregnancy. What is this guy saying? Who does he think he is? And Jesus has this chance to shoot straight with them, to explain everything with nuance and clarity, especially nuance. He's got one shot to win them over. And he responds in a way that would have gotten him killed. He says, doubtless you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. I.e., Jesus, come heal our community. We heard about what you did at Capernaum. Do that here in your hometown. And Jesus reads the room. And they see, he sees that they have been giddy about the miracles that he's been doing and what he's proclaiming. But they are giddy because they can only see 
what would benefit them. Somehow community pride turned very quickly into community self-centeredness. He looks at them dead in the eyes and says, look y'all, you want me to do parlor tricks like I did in Capernaum, or what you thought I did in Capernaum. I'm, a, I'm here uh, anointed to proclaim a revolution of love of God and neighbor, and y'all are just looking out for yourselves. In the part we skipped, he tells uh, two stories about how sometimes God would heal Gentiles and lepers and people outside the community and leave the covenant people to themselves. This is why it turned to wrath. Somehow he, seems, he, he sees that they presume upon good stuff happening to them as a birthright. For them, it's all about uh, getting liberated from, from Roman rule and then doing what they want afterwards. It's revolution as self-actualization. The kingdom of God reduced to personal theory, therapy and civic autonomy. And they can only see themselves as entitled victims. Now here's the issue. They're actually victims of an oppressive force, the most powerful oppressive force in the world at the time. They are socially oppressed. And in some ways they are entitled because the promises of God have been given to Israel at this point. And so there's the irony of it. Jesus is adjusting their entire framework of becoming a liberated people. That the, that the kingdom that he is bringing is a liberation greater than self-rule or self-fulfillment or self at all. It's not about you, or it's at least not only about you. You alone. But anyone who would come to me. He just told them that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And all they can seem to muster is, what's in it for me? I don't know if they were angry because he claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. But they were certainly angry because he refused to be manipulated as their puppet leader and spiritual lack lackey, uh, distributing religious goods and miracles and services at their beck and call. And they lose it. It turns from marvel to mayhem. They riot from a church service and drive him out to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. This is the definition of an attempted lynching. It is mob violence. Could you imagine the scene? Mary and Joseph screaming, no, don't kill him. That's my baby. Let him explain. They're running after the, the crowds, crying out, all the chaos that's going on. And again, the scripture doesn't like go into this or delve into it in any way. And in one of the cooler Jesus Jedi moves in all of scriptures, it simply says, but passing through their midst, Jesus went away. I'm not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> Nothing to see here. You will not kill me. Not now. It is not the time. The Bible doesn't explain it, just records it. Could you imagine when he got home that night? After Mary hugged his neck and wept and thanked God, 
Seriously, Jesus? You had one shot to explain. You had one first impression to give. And this is how you want to start things? You've been hanging out with your cousin John too long. That man crazy, and he eats locusts. Jesus wasn't invited back to the synagogue again. He wouldn't return to Nazareth. Jesus started his ministry by creating a riot. I know that's a long retelling, but sometimes we've trivialized Jesus. And I want you to experience how radical Jesus' mission was and is and what it means. I love this passage for so many reasons, not the least of which it's a story of revolution. I've got too much anti-established in me not to love a good little revolution. But mostly because of Jesus' message and that every single person must reckon with it. Let me try to put it in one sentence. Jesus is a usurping king who inaugurates an unruly kingdom of unimaginable breadth or unmanageable breadth and unimaginable grace. Say it again. Jesus is a usurping king who inaugurates an unruly kingdom of unmanageable breadth and unimaginable grace. He's a usurping king. I hesitated to use this sort of language at all. Christians and non-Christians alike have used such language to wage literal and cultural wars. In our country, fusing US foreign or domestic policies with Jesus is the exact same error as what's going on in the synagogue. And yet there's no way to avoid the nature of this passage. It's, it's declaring a revolution of love and grace and justice and mercy and peace and healing. We can often look at Jesus as the kind, gentle, sweet man who had lots of nice things to say lot, to, to lots of people. And so often he is. He does, however, reserve the language of revolution for the political elite and the religiously convinced. And often they were the same people in that day and ours. Kind, gentle, and sweet don't typically get you killed. Especially not by the religious and political establishment. And yet Jesus' kind of focus on this and the way he orients towards this is fighting for love and justice and grace. It is direct. It is incisive and clear. It's subversive and dangerous. He wasn't just a man to follow, but a man who should bring up some fear, certainly brought up some hatred, enough to kill him. Jesus did come to overturn the status quo of his and our days. C.S. Lewis puts it, we live in, in, in enemy-occupied territory. Christianity is the story of how the rival king, Jesus, has landed. You might say, landed in disguise and is calling us off to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. It's an invasion of a king and his kingdom that will shake to the core of the world and everyone with whom it comes in contact. Jesus is a usurping king. 
please do not let the images in your head of geopolitical revolution to direct your imaginations in this. His kingdom does not conform to this world. Human revolutions, even our own, are steeped in hypocrisy and selfishness. But in Jesus' reign, blind people see, captives are freed, the oppressed are liberated, poor people actually get some good news. All for the sake of neighbors, not even first for themselves, but maybe first for themselves, but for the sake of their neighbors. Good news in its form adopted by the Gospels is a dispatch of victory. Springer and I just finished um, The Sun Doesn't Shine. It's a book by Anthony Ray Hinton, who if you've seen anything of uh, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, or anything like that, it's the story of the inmate that was for almost three decades wrongly accused was on death row. And it's a story about how he entered and, and received and gave this kingdom to bear, this mission of God. It is unbelievable. And he, in his own right, says, I chose love over hate or vengeance, forgiveness. And when he was liberated, and even before he was liberated, he gave all glory to this Jesus, this usurping king. The one who said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am here, and I plan turning, to turn this world upside down. And it will not fit all your desires, all your hopes. But it will meet all your greatest desires and true hopes. Let this passage, this first sermon from Jesus, refresh your expectation about what it means to engage God's world. Our mission isn't his mission. We don't, they're not exactly the same. We don't die for people's sins. But our mission is intimately tied to his. And so we sacrifice ourselves for our neighbors. And we are first recipients of this kingdom and then participants in this kingdom that he brings. Let this sermon blow the doors and hinges off your expectations. He tells them the kingdom is for the broken, the outcast, and the poor. For you to admit that and then go be about the kingdom, the broken, the outcast, and the poor. It has unimaginable breadth. It was so big that his hometown didn't know what to do with it. Not Gentiles, not our oppressors. Heck, the, the people from Nazareth were like, not even the people from Capernaum, please. Us first. Jesus, take care of us first. Make us great again. And Jesus says, no, my kingdom is about make others great. This, this sermon is so much broader than we think. There are two errors to avoid in hearing Jesus' first sermon. is that you miss the physical reality by over-spiritualizing it. Or you miss the spiritual reality by over-physicalizing it. Don't manage Jesus' kingdom by trying to make it too spiritualized. He's talking about the poor. The actual poor. Not just the poor in spirit. Especially in Luke. 
He's talking about real prisoners, not just spiritual prisoners. He's talking about generally oppressed, general, genuinely oppressed people, not just those who feel bad because, you know, someone didn't like their post. He's talking about real blind people who really then see. Not just the wonderful, incredible, and important metaphor that is an amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. And Jesus substantiates all these realities by what he does subsequently until he goes all the way to the cross and the resurrection. He literally heals blind people. And yet, for my social justice folks who love liberation theology, more about the liberation and less about theology, Jesus inaugurates an unimaginable kingdom, unmanageable kingdom for you as well. It is spiritual. Jesus is doing a double entendre in the play on words. The other gospel writers pick it up as well. Jesus does claim spiritual power over the princes of this world. He leans into that double entendre of the captive, the prisoner, the poor, the blind, and the oppressed, because those are spiritual categories too. And it may just be our modern uh, desire to, to make a massive distinction between those two, because if you dive deep enough into the spiritual, it's going to get real physical, and if you dive deep enough into the physical, it's going to get real spiritual. It may be a modern problem, not an ancient text problem. Jesus is inaugurating this unruly kingdom that won't be managed by our narrow breadth of our expectations, either spiritual or physical. There's a reason why Christian communities throughout the ages have established hospitals, the very first hotels to welcome the stranger, to food drives, adopted agencies, and emancipation campaigns. There's a reason that's true. There's a reason why Christian communities have become specialists in friendship and reconciliation and mental health therapy and traumatic healing. There's a reason for that. Jesus' inaugural sermon resists our limited and small-minded categories. And your job is just to not manage it. You can't, so don't try. The kingdom of God brings blessings flow as far as the curse is found. If there is brokenness in the world, that's why we're there. If there's brokenness in us, that's why he's there. And he's there when we're there. If you hear this sermon and don't get your mind blown a little bit, I just ask you to reread it with fresh eyes. It's not manageable. It's unmanageable in its breadth. Or it's unmanageable in its breadth. And it's unimaginable in its grace. Off stage again this time. The most important part about his sermon is not what he read, but what he didn't read. He stopped halfway through verse 2. I'll read verse 1, tell you when I get to verse 2, read what he read, and then tell you what he didn't read. All right? Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolls up the scroll. What he didn't read was, and the day of vengeance of our God. 
he skipped that part in an ellipsis and said, this word, the year of the Lord's favor, that's fulfilled in your hearing this day. This is why it's on the Mount Rushmore for me, because he stopped between 61 2A and 61 2B. And for those who had ears to hear that day, he was proclaiming this is the year, the epoch of the Lord's favor until I come again, where I will bring justice, not just mercy and justice, but justice. I and my mission in this world is to inaugurate a kingdom of mercy, a year of favor, the era of revolutionary grace. And we live now between 61-2A and 61-2B. The mercy seat is open until he returns again every second, every minute, every failure, every sin, every good work that you thought was going to make a change in the world. All of it is covered and reconciled and will be resurrected because it is the year of the Lord's favor in his kingdom. There's not just still time. There's an invitation, better a summons from the king to come and receive and participate in God's gracious kingdom in the world. It is unimaginable grace. Jesus is the usurping king who inaugurates an unruly kingdom with unmanageable breath and unimaginable grace. And so all that's left is our response. And there's no getting around it. You either bow the knee or throw them off the cliff. Do not pretend that what he says doesn't matter. Distraction to his words is deception to you. There is no neutral ground in this occupied territory. The usurper is here and he ain't leaving. The revolution, whether televised or not, is happening. For those of you who have yielded, engage, participate in this mission with God. But remember the false narratives of what revolution is in our world and our day. Do not include love of neighbor and bringing grace and justice to the physical and spiritual dimensions of this world for the sake of another. But don't stop engaging in this. Never give in to the world's weapons of hate and judgmentalism and selfishness and your own personal safety. And never forget the kingdom of our kingdom, did, did, he didn't come to kill his enemies, but to die for them. And our engagement in the world carries those piercings and sacrifices of forgiveness and embodiment of those things to the world. Die well, my friend, for the sake of your neighbors and for the glory of God. For those of you who are like, oh, this sounds real weird, and I don't know what he's talking about. All I would say to you 
Because what we believe, what is true for us and for you, is that this is the year of the Lord's favor, of welcome. This is the time of forgiveness and liberation. Come to this king. Bending your knee here is where you'll find life. And then to all of us, believer and non, me included, Know that when you fail, when you have those moments where you care more about being right than loving or gracious, when you care more about winning than serving, when you're overwhelmed with your own failure or your good efforts that don't work to love and live in this world, here's the reality. Through Jesus, the grace has waged war on your soul and your body, and it will win. Lean into the reality that this is the year of the Lord's favor. And what you will find there is unimaginable grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in your name. Amen.